Hey, this is Daryl with a preamble, and there are three things in today's preamble. First, a quick summary of the show. We start, weirdly, by talking about The Office. A little bit of a health update for me. Uh, Then we talk Premier League, and then we answer four listener questions, including one about NWSL and one about Weston McKenney. Second thing, you've heard MLS Assist, the Major League Soccer Tactics show that has been part of the Total Soccer Show feed ever since January. MLS Assist is now its own separate feed, and Joe and Jordan are planning to do wall-to-wall coverage of the MLS's back tournament in Orlando. Please go and find the MLS Assist feed, subscribe, rate, review, do all that good stuff. Joe and Jordan are putting out a great show, and you need to listen to it. Third, today's show is presented by Fubo. You've heard us talk about Fubo before. You'll hear us talk about Fubo again. It is our favorite over-the-top internet TV provider. Fubo.tv slash TSS is where you go to get a seven-day free trial. Once you do, you'll know why we're so excited about it. Once you log in to Fubo TV... All the soccer is there. Three different people can watch at once with the family plan. You get all kinds of cloud DVR space so you can DVR all the soccer matches you want to watch. And at around $50 a month, it is way more affordable than a cable subscription. Most importantly, Fubo TV is the only over-the-top internet TV service provider that was created with soccer fans in mind. You can click on the soccer link and it will give you a calendar of all the soccer matches that are going to be broadcast in the next few days. It's a soccer planner where you can watch all your soccer. So once again, go to fubo.tv slash TSS for a seven-day free trial. And welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Daryl Grove and I'm joined by a man who's sitting on his biscuit, never having to risk it. His name is Taylor Rockwell. Hello. I hate that line so much. Hello, my friend. How you Hello. doing? Do you do you get the reference? Oh, I absolutely do. It's what Daryl says to Michael during uh, the office safety uh, presentations. But yep. I... To me, like, look, I I appreciate, uh, like, working in a warehouse. I did it for one summer. That is not risking it. And that is still what drives me crazy about that episode. Like, he's not a fighter pilot. He's not a firefighter. He's, like, a a, a warehouse manager. I don't know if he's really risking it either. I worked in a a grocery Mm -hmm. store that had a baler. Um, and we Not. were told to be very, very careful of it. We got the same lecture. But that was just my way of letting you know that I'm still watching The Office on your recommendation. And here is the important thing with that, Daryl. I said to you before we started recording, you said I have a very random introduction. And I said, I hope it's about the thing I think it might be about. Because if so, I've had a question for you that I've been meaning to ask. It was indeed about The Office. Oh, my wow. question for you is, is Kelly Kapoor one of your favorite characters at this point? Yes. She I figured seems- she would be really confuses me because (laughs) I was a big fan of the Mindy Project Mm -hmm. and Mindy Kelly's subsequent work her new show on Netflix I can't remember the name of it right now but it's absolutely great if if anyone hasn't seen it I can't reconcile in my head Mindy Kaling with uh-huh. Kelly Kapoor they seem like two completely different people and it's only what like 10 12 years ago H- how far into it are you at this point like season four maybe oh you better buckle up sir <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah she she keeps going she keeps going um it's yeah it's it's 
She is great. I, um, I think the Office Ladies podcast, uh, which they do, they kind of break down every episode. Their reference point is when her hair stops being up is when she goes more Mindy than, char- than like the original character. And when they okay. add more Mindy is when she gets more Kelly Kapoor. Brilliant. All yeah. right, we should, we should get... We should start angling towards soccer should before we? we get any one-star iTunes reviews. They play soccer <laughs> in an episode in next season. You'll get to that. <laughs> On today's show, Taylor, we're going to talk about um, Wednesday's uh, Premier League games. We're going to maybe talk about some, some Manchester United, some Chelsea, some Arsenal, some Everton. Um, then we've got listener questions later in the show. Weston McKenney coming up in the listener questions because there have been some developments mm-hmm. um, at Schalke, which I guess... They're not good developments, but we have to talk about them, right? Yeah. Um, before all that, um, if you'll indulge me for another minute, I've got a bit of a health update. That, yes, please. Um, I want to I want to share with listeners. Um, so people will have been aware that um, the clinical trial I've been doing has been going really well for what nine months or so. Tumors have been shrinking. No new tumors. We've had a little bit of bad news, which is that um, a couple of the tumors have started to grow again. Right, just a few millimeters here and there, and it's not like all over it's just these couple of guys uh so it means that uh, um we're going to switch it up a bit and do some radiation therapy on two of the tumors and the hope is we can do that to target the two that have started to grow and that the clinical trial uh targeted gene therapy and immunotherapy will continue to work with everything else does that make sense i realize the deeper we get into this it gets more and more medically complicated i want to make sure people understand what's going on basically are you saying Cancer is a complicated issue that requires a lot of different solutions all at once. I mean, yeah, I'm learning that. Yeah. <laughs> um, a couple questions just to clarify. So does that mean that when they're regrowing, are they resistant then to the current treatment? Yeah, I think it means that they figured out a way around the current treatment, but not everything has, as far as we can tell. Just a couple of tumors have figured it out. Yeah. So does that mean you have smart cancer or persistent cancer? <laughs> maybe both maybe both um but so then the idea would be that like with the radiation treatments it can it can like really specifically target those areas as opposed to yeah. before where it was sort and, of a all over sort of situation yeah well i think i think what i understand is the good news is that the clinical trial immunotherapy and targeted gene therapy had shrunk them to such an extent mm-hmm. that now radiotherapy i guess is what you call it like is they're small enough to be able to target with a radiation blast whereas before that wasn't really realistic so it's not it's not good news because good news would have been hey the clinical trial just keeps working and working and working but it is good news that the clinical trial has got us to a point where even as it starts to falter we've made so much progress that we can attack it in other ways that we couldn't before so that that is like exciting that you they can kind of focus in we've held the ball so long and opened up some pockets (laughs) of space that we can exploit I, I do want to clarify, I think from my understanding, I'm not a medical expert, I think radiation therapy is, is one of the things you're talking about. And then radiotherapy is where they play easy listening music and the cancer hates it so much that it just goes away. I think oh, that's no. the two different treatments. All right. I look forward to both. I'm not sure the second <laughs> one is covered by my insurance. <laughs> uh, it's probably, probably not. Probably not. But so I guess the bigger question is, and it's like a, a big one. I, so then how are you feeling overall about the process so far? I mean, I'm, I mean, you can tell in my voice I'm good mostly, mm-hmm. right? I was a little, um, a little surprised because we just had so much like, consistent good news. Like it shrunk, mm-hmm. it shrunk, it shrunk like every month for like nine months. So to suddenly get the little turnaround of, ah, it yeah. started to grow again, that, that was a bit of a shock. So there was like an hour uh, last week where I was like, whoa, okay, this is a new reality we got to adjust to. Um, 
But as is usual, when someone says, okay, but here's what we're going to do and here's the plan going forward, I always feel better when I know there's a plan, right? Mm-hmm. Like I've got, we've got bullet points for today's show. We know what's going to consist in today's show. I feel good about today's show. <laughs> I feel good about my treatment plan because it's, because it's a plan and not just a like, no, doctors didn't shrug their shoulders and say, hey, good luck. <laughs> Yeah, see, this is what I mean when I go back to the Daryl quote of like, I I don't know if I would say like uh, having to answer today's listener questions is quite having to risk it as much as battling cancer, Uh, which I think we're not even... But it would be daunting if we didn't have them in front of us. Actually, that is very true. Good point, my friend. Um, (laughs) Two two more questions and then we can move on to actual soccer. Uh, The first one is... But I'm I'm counting these as co-host questions. That's fair. That's fair. How how, like quickly do they know if it will turn around? Like uh, as in like, like, do you have the radiation treatment and then like the next week or is it a much more like over the course of months we'll see if there's a response as i understand it radiation is like you blast it and it like disrupts the dna of Mm -hmm. the tumor and then it just can't grow anymore and kind of falls away that's my Mm -hmm. understanding so i think over the course of a few weeks after the radiation treatment you should know if it's uh if it's been wiped away or Mm. not. And then as we do more scans, we'll also uh, hopefully get confirmation that the immunotherapy and targeted gene therapy is still keeping everything else quiet, right? So we'll we'll know something in a month and maybe something else in two months. All right, so that is good. And then final question, which is a bit more of like a Taylor question than a Daryl question. But um, I was reading the other day that like doctors have tried to move away from the idea of like fighting cancer or it's a battle because if you then succumb to cancer, it gives this idea that like you weren't fighting hard enough and people get nervous (laughs) about fighting. Do you have that sort of like, have you sort of noticed people avoiding that? Do you avoid those types of words or are you all about some fighting? Uh, No, I avoid that phrasing just because Mm -hmm. it, it, I don't know. For some reason, the model doesn't quite fit, right? Because mm. it's not a battle where, like, if I try harder, then I can win. You know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. So yeah, I don't use that. I don't use that terminology, and doctors don't use that terminology. But I guess because they don't want to make it emotional, right? They want to mm. say, like, they want to keep it evidentiary rather than emotional. Yeah. Maybe I maybe I just lean more towards that mindset as well myself. Mm-hmm. So yeah. what would be the better way to say it? Like, you're, you're, I don't know, dealing with cancer. You're process of removing the cancer from your person like what would you go with there cohabiting <laughs> aggressive de-escalation of cohabitation how about that <laughs> we're trying for a conscious uncoupling there we go <laughs> that's daryl is consciously uncoupling from his cancer and i think that is a perfect place to leave it well done daryl now shall we talk some soccer yes let's. all right lovely all right so we are recording this on uh thursday afternoon um so we haven't seen the uh the man city liverpool game we don't know if bremen survived their bundesliga playoff i do mm-hmm. know that josh Sargent wasn't starting uh we know that sheffield united beat spurs but yeah, we'll be did. talking about that maybe on tomorrow's show today we're going to talk about man united's 3-0 win over brighton um, West Ham's 3-2 win over Chelsea, Arsenal's 4-0 win over Norwich, and Everton's 2-1 win over Leicester. And we're going to do it in the form of Daryl questions. These are oh, questions yes. that I sent to Taylor mm-hmm. last night um, after sort of having a cursory glance at these games and then getting into detail. Mm-hmm. And Taylor, let's start with Manchester United. I mean, if we have to. All right. Here's what I see. So mm. 3-0 over Brighton. And what a goal from Greenwood, two from Bruno Fernandes. 15 games unbeaten for Man United now. I feel good about watching them every time they're on TV. I know you do. I know Grant Wilders because he, he told us when we were on uh, mm-hmm. his show. How seriously should we be taking Man United now? Are they title challengers next year? If not, why not? 
Sure. I mean, I think this season they should be taken seriously from the teams, or like from the teams around them who are going to be battling for those final Champions League spots. I do not think that they are yet uh, 2021 title challengers because I think though they have the players who right now have found their form, lest we forget, if there hadn't been the suspension of play, they would not have Marcus Rashford in the team. They would not have Paul Pogba. And then you would probably see some of the stagnation, some of the frustrating play that was uh, on display prior to the break. And so I think that speaks to the lack of depth they have. And I think if they can strengthen a little bit in the summer and get some more depth and maybe replace one or two uh, positions or strengthen there, then maybe they're closer to that competition. But for now, I still think it's very much a Man City versus Liverpool race. Yes, I think so too. But could, could you see Man United being like that third place team? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, and I think that's 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 partially because of the vulnerabilities of the teams around them. I think we'll talk about Chelsea's defensive issues uh, later on. Yeah. Tottenham obviously continuing to struggle. I remain confident that Wolves are going to be a team to have to deal with if you want to be in the Champions League next season. Arsenal yeah. could maybe be there based on the form they're on as well on as well but I think yeah they're definitely I feel much more secure about like challenging for the Champions League being in the Champions League spot that would be my full expectation if they're in like fifth or sixth at this point well at this point next season would be July and the season would be over but you know what I mean (laughs) if they're like not in the top four I think that would be cause for alarm cause for speculation about failure so let's talk about that lack of depth because that's that was the first thing that came to mind for me as well because Let's say like uh, Greenwood, right? I was really impressed with Greenwood Mm -hmm. um, in this game. I want to maybe talk about that in detail in a minute. But it it really strikes me that on that right wing, if Greenwood is injured or, you know, falls out of form, because he's only 18, you know, young players Mm -hmm. kind of sometimes blow hot and cold a little bit um, as they're getting started in their career. For me, I've been harsh on him in the past and I'm going to be again. Danny James is a step down. When Danny James comes in to replace Marcus Greenwood, it's a step down in what's happening down Manchester United's right side. And I I think that's a really big example of a lack of depth. And then I'd I'd say the same about Bruno Fernandes, right? The whole Man United form, the whole season seemed to turn around when Fernandes was signed. Mm -hmm. But again, if if he gets injured or if he has to take a rest or if he steps out then there's no Fernandez replacement, mm-hmm. right? Pogba can't do what Fernandez does. It's Andres Pereira, Pereira or Mata, yeah, basically. Yeah, it's just, yeah. it's not the same. There isn't no. that guy who is like the guy who takes full creative responsibility for the mm-hmm. team. And and I, I, I agree with both points. I would say to the Jan- Danny James one, like, I don't even think Danny James would argue with you about his sort of status, <laughs> status because, lest we forget, like he was going to move to Leeds, who are uh, very likely to get promoted, are in the championship, though. Uh, More on and that, that later. And that move falls through, and he ends up going to Manchester United. But I, I don't think he was meant to be the automatic starter. Oh, he's going to be in there every single game, and he's going to kind of be the difference maker. I think he was meant to be a young player who they could sort of nurture, give minutes to here and there, and he eventually plays his way in, or doesn't, but hopefully does. And then I think because of the lack of depth, because of the, the few attacking options they had to start the season, we saw more of him. And I think that maybe like sways it into like, oh, he was starting a whole bunch, and now he's not. And I think... It's probably a strong sign that he's not playing as much, but you're right that if they go back to him being a consistent feature, I think that that is a problem for Manchester United's attack. And, but I really mean this as a, a big heaping of praise for Greenwood. Yeah. Because um, I loved what I saw from him in this Brighton game, and I've really enjoyed what he's been doing essentially since we came back from a coronavirus break. Um, he's, he's been magnificent down Manchester United's right side. Um, if anyone hasn't seen the first goal against Brighton, there's all kinds of good stuff from Greenwood mm. in there, right? He sort of... 
I think it's Wambasaka has the ball on the right and Greenwood just slips the other side of a defensive midfielder. So it's like mm-hmm. a clever bit of just sneaky movement. Receives the ball, dribbles it. I want to say it's Dunk, the centre-back, and does like the double step over, gets Dunk mm-hmm. to open his legs and then fires it through Dunk's legs and surprises Ryan by slipping the ball inside the near post. I mean, that's like three little bits of magic from Greenwood in about five seconds. Yeah, and and it's so often the case that when you see the double step over, like if it's in a highlight reel, you see the double step over, you see the defender back off, and then the clip cuts to the next move because <laughs> it doesn't go anywhere. It leads to like a yeah. square pass. That he is utilizing the skills to create the opportunities to then create the scoring opportunities is what you want to see. It's that efficiency in the approach versus just trying to do step overs all the time, not necessarily going to lead anywhere productive. I mean, if he'd done the quadruple step, Step over, Dunk would have been doing the splits. Well, that's he, true. That, that would have. <laughs> I happened. think Greenwood realized he can't go any wider. That's shoot. <laughs> but like, like as an example, so yes, I, I too am very excited about Mason Greenwood. I'm assuming that anytime there's a young English player doing exciting things and scoring goals in the Premier League, that makes Daryl's yeah. uh, England heart did happy. I, did I call him Marcus Greenwood earlier? I think I, I accidentally so. did. Yeah, but Mason Greenwood. Mason. If Greenwood. you, I feel like if you did, I would have heard it. But if you, if you did and I didn't hear it, then the shame is on me as well. So we can split <laughs> that one. Um, but to your point, like again with the lack of depth, like there, there's it's out wide. It is in the number ten spot. There's some concern about maybe the, maybe one or two of the center backs there. But the other big one would be like I like Odia Nagalo a lot. Uh, maybe for his off field uh, actions as much as his on field. Mm-hmm. But is he? going to be the difference maker? Is he the one that if Anthony Martial gets hurt or something and is out for two months, do you feel as confident with with Odia Nagalo as your basically only striker? I guess Mason, maybe Mason Greenwood could move central if you needed him to, but it's still, there's a few players, there's a few kind of squad depth players that could potentially be oh, yeah. first team players that I think would make that big difference and help Manchester United close that gap. Yeah, I mean, I'm all in on the, the lack of depth being a problem, but yep. I, I kind of want to focus on at least the first choice starting eleven. Mm-hmm. why they're so effective. And I want to throw this idea at you, is that Man United shape is like often listed as like a 4-2-3-1 or mm-hmm. sometimes something else. I think I've, I've seen them consistently move to, when they're in attack, whatever officially their shape is and whatever their defensive shape is, they move into something resembling a 3-4-3. And so, do you remember we had a conversation not long ago about like I thought Matic was playing centre back, but he yeah. wasn't. But he kind of does when Man United go forward, right? I think that's become a feature of Matic joins the centre backs. The fullbacks go high, so Shaw goes high on one side, Wambasaka goes high on the other side. And then you have this like uh more centralised front three of Rashford, Martial, and Greenwood, so they can play as like Rashford and Greenwood can play as like inside forwards as opposed to wingers. So uh, after we had that conversation on air, I like watched. I went back and watched some of that game, and I was like, I think I see what he's talking about. But I specifically watched this game with an eye towards: Are they in a back three? And I think you sort of nailed it. Of like, not really, but also not not really. That yeah, like <laughs> like Nemanja Matic definitely stays deeper. You have the two center backs push on, and it's almost that kind of flat three across the back. But yes, then that does allow more people to get forward, and you have more options. And I think that sort of is what Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's style seems to be that's a question I have had is like what is his approach like he's not Gagan pressing he's not necessarily high pressing he's not sitting in and I and I sort of think he is going with a we're going to do some basic things and then I'm going to leave it in the hands of you world-class footballers to do things and I think he's not telling them take four touches and you have to be here and you have to be out wide I think he's giving them a basic structure that allows for a lot of free-flowing attacks and thus far it seems to be working. We're also seeing uh, that Pogba-Fernandez partnership that we're all excited about really start to pay off, I mm. think. So there's the goal where, um, doesn't Pogba like fake to shoot and then square it to Fernandez? Yes. And then Fernandez shoots from the top of the box. 
I watched, when I watched this game from the beginning, I'd already seen that goal. And they do it in like the fifth or sixth minute. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think Fernandez hits the post or it's saved. And it made me realize that this is a thing that they are working on, right? That people fear the Pogba shot from the top of the box. So they have Pogba faking shots, just like, you know, uh, like, like faking the, faking the shooting motion mm-hmm. and then squaring it to Fernandez, who is waiting to shoot first time. It's a thing that they're working on, a thing that they're doing. So that, that makes me really think that this partnership can work. I really hope Pogba stays. Um, I, I will say, from talking to Graham Ruffin, I, I don't know where he would go. Uh, just due to financial constraints, due to squad depth issues at both Barcelona and Real Madrid, maybe that is also me being like wishful in my thinking. But I also think we could drill a little bit deeper on why it's been so successful, that partnership. And I think yeah. the big thing is, just from a basic standpoint... If you're only if you're playing against a Manchester United team that doesn't have Bruno Fernandez but does have Paul Pogba, you sort of know who's the player you need to worry about there. Yeah. You're going to do everything you can to handle Paul Pogba, and I think simultaneously, if you're if you're Manchester United and you have Pogba but you don't have Bruno as that number ten, as you've already spoken to, who's playing there? Maybe it's Mata, maybe it's Andres Pereira, maybe you've got two strikers, but it means that Pogba has to do more. He has to get forward to try to facilitate those attacks, but then also has to get back, and it kind of leaves you exposed in your numbers in the set, in the middle of the field, whereas if you have Bruno he's given a bit more freedom he's given a bit more license and he doesn't have to do so much in terms of chance creation and attack creation and sustaining the attack he can do Paul Pogba things and I think that sort of license that he's now given to Rome a little bit more because of what Bruno brings I think is another big reason why they look so good together and I think that drawing attention to himself and like faking the shot and then laying off to Bruno Fernandes is exactly the type of thing we were hoping for, right? Where mm-hmm. Paul Pogba isn't trying to do everything. He's using the attention that is drawn to him to, uh, to assist a teammate, literally, mm-hmm. in, in the case of this goal. So, yeah, I, I think that's really, really working. Is, um, is it fair to say, like, I know it's, it's fun. I, I, I'm asking this uh, as a Man United fan to a person who's, who's neutral on them. Um, and I don't think you have any antipathy towards them. But like, is it fair to say that the Premier League is more exciting when you have maybe like one big team having a down season? And then you can sort of look at like what's happening there. Why is that bad? But when you have a couple big teams just consistently bad, it sort of makes the league less fun. And I guess what I'm asking is, is it more fun for you as a neutral to have a good Manchester United like after they've been so bad for so long? Is it interesting to get to watch them again and not have it be like, maybe they're going to win, maybe it's going to be yeah. nil-nil, this could be really boring? I think especially Man United, because even when they're, even when things were bad, they were still making high-profile signings and the lot, there's a lot of star names on the field mm-hmm. and there's still that weird sense of expectation of like, oh, it's a Man United game, right? It's got a bit mm-hmm. of like stardust around it. So for that to be consistently disappointing was probably more frustrating than with any other team because of that Manchester United name. Does that make sense? I, it's like, I would agree. It's like, if, it's like if the Yankees suddenly played really bad baseball forever. Yeah, well, they, they kind of do that from time well, to time. There we go. <laughs> yes, but, but eventually but they you were can still always of... on TV. That's the problem. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And, and you can always sort of bet that eventually they're going to spend a billion dollars and bring in four free agents and said they'd be very good again. So, yeah, okay. <laughs> I, yeah, I think that's a, a valid point. Anything, anything else you want to talk about with Man United's 3 0 win? Uh, no, just that I expect this form to continue for the rest of the season. I'd maybe like to talk about um, if we do see a lack of depth, do you see any obvious and realistic transfers that could be made in whatever short break we have between the uh, between the end of this season and the start of next one? I'm going to stall for time by asking you in the reverse, do you think Jaden Sancho is a player that they should be pursuing? Because 
with Dortmund posting the losses they did, it does seem like that's a player who they will utilize to make up some of that the, that difference. Uh, Manchester United could probably afford him. Do you think he makes this team better? Do you think that's a smart acquisition, or is that another yeah. bringing in a star player that could end up being disruptive sort of move? I think it's bringing in a star player that would fit what we can now call the mm-hmm. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer system, right? I think mm-hmm. if he joins that front three, then you have the options of the current starting front three of Rashford, Martial, and Greenwood, you bring in Jadon Sancho presumably on the right wing and maybe Greenwood is the centre forward instead of Martial. Maybe he's Martial's deputy. Maybe they're competing for that spot. Sancho can also play right or left. I think he would add... He would basically add an element where he's obviously a big name and a star player, but it would mean you could start rotating like maybe four players for Mm -hmm. those front three spots and it's terrifying no matter what happens. Okay. All right. So I, I still, I'm still, Greenwood, I'm still Greenwood sure. is a striker, right? Mm-hmm. And he really, he would prefer to play centre forward. So that yeah. means that he's not just someone who can only play on the right wing with his left foot. All right, I appreciate your answer. I appreciate you uh, giving me enough time to think about this one because I, the d- answer did sort of come to me, and it is informed by what Graham Ruffin was saying yesterday. That I think both Barcelona and Real Madrid are going to be looking to offload some players to both clear up their wage bill somewhat, and then also make some money. Um, and with that in mind, I th- I'm not saying they're going to do the exact same thing, but if you're worried about midfield creativity and depth, having a go at Luka Modric or Ivan Rakitic, Ooh. who are both sort of not wanted by their clubs after this season, that feels like you could get them for free or very cheap uh, for the quality that they would be bringing in. And if you could kind of convince them that, yeah, you're going to play consistently, you're not going to start every game, you're going to be a substitute... Uh, and if you can get them on board, those feel like very smart moves. I don't think either of them would be interested in that, though, yeah, right? They surely the want to go somewhere where they're told they're going to start. Mm-hmm. And, and if you accept the idea that, say, Fred is a perfectly able backup to Pogba in that number eight situation... Which I don't. If, <laughs> if Matt, I mean, he was really good before Pogba... Oh, sorry, sorry. sorry. You, you, said it, you said it correctly. I heard you wrong. You said uh, is a very capable backup. I thought you were saying, like, replacement deputy if Pogba were out. I was like, oh, they're not quite the same level, but now I know what you mean. Gotcha, yeah, gotcha, like, gotcha. And so if you, then you think mm-hmm. maybe McTominay is the backup for Matic. To me, the obvious thing is there is no replacement for Bruno Fernandes. Mm-hmm. And I, I just don't see how you would get a player of similar quality who's willing to not be the starter. Uh, that's the really, that's the really tough spot for me. Is I don't see how you, I don't see how you replace Fernandez basically. You're Manchester United, and you pay them three hundred thousand pounds a week. I mean, then, then you have an unhappy player, and suddenly <laughs> very you're in trouble, true, right? That's very why true. it's a bad idea. So what, what do you then? I think maybe the other thing is that I can't really think of a young number 10 who would also take that job and still be a player that if Bruno were out for three months, I would be like, all right, but that could work. We'll see how yeah. that goes. Richie Ledesma? I don't know. Martin, <laughs> Martin, Martin Odegaard? I mean, maybe, but he's looking for first-team football, right? Yeah, I suppose. Yeah. I suppose. This, is, this is a tough one. If anyone has the answer, please write it on a postcard. Send it to Old Trafford. And if you're uh, one of the people that I'm going to assume was just screaming into your headphones that you have an answer, I apologize and I look forward to hearing it. Put it on that postcard. Send it to go. Total Soccer Show. <laughs> Send another one to Old Trafford. Perfect. Uh, <laughs> all right, should we talk Chelsea as well? Yeah. Um, okay, so Chelsea lost 3-2 they did. away to West Ham. But let's start with Christian Pulisic because this was another fine performance from Christian Pulisic. He won't appear on the stat sheet, right? But he basically got two assists. He yeah. won that penalty when he uh, accelerated away from Diop and got tripped. And he won a free kick when I think, was it Rice slide tackled him? I think so, um, yeah. And then Willian stepped up and, and scored the free kick. And Pulisic was a, a constant threat, basically, 
out wide on the left or in that like inside left central channel. To me, every time Pulisic received the ball, he just dribbled at West Ham's defence and they he mostly caused panic, even though he lost the ball several times. He really like... Uh, it was like if you run into a crowd of pigeons, they all sort of like start to panic. <laughs> I mean, he caused me panic when he came out uh, at the weekend with that potential calf yeah, injury. I was a little bit that. nervous. I did not expect him to start this game. That he did made me maybe even happier than Manchester United being good again, just because it has been so long. It has basically been since Clint Dempsey in my mind that we have had an American that I could go and sort of be like, oh, like this team is playing. I bet that American is going to be starting for them. And then you go and look and he was. To see him in that starting 11 for the third straight game, it does give you the idea that like he is maybe going to be that player for them next season as well. Yeah. And, and from an American perspective, again, we haven't had that in a long time. That made me excited. But that it's not just because they don't have the options, they don't have players around, he'll do until somebody else better gets here. He is backing it up, to your point. He's winning penalties, he's winning free kicks, he's scoring goals, he's creating chances, he's making pigeons fly away. It's what you <laughs> want to see from an attacker. He's got, he's got license to lose the ball. If that yeah, makes exactly. sense. It seems like, I actually think this plays into the bigger maybe problem with Chelsea is that Frank Lampard has said to one of his players, hey, when you get the ball, just go at people. Doesn't matter if you lose it, just go at them every time you get the ball. I think that's like a microcosm of Chelsea's whole I think, approach and problem. But it is a problem because he, to see Pulisic he do it. said that to the centre-backs as well, I think is the major <laughs> problem. One final thing on Pulisic. Yeah. Um, he's passed a major test in my eyes, which is I unsolicited today got a whatsapp message from one of my friends back home oh paul you you know paul right you Mm -hmm. you met paul when he came over to visit um hey i'm really impressed with this pulisic guy so he's sort of he's hitting that bar of um i i didn't like solicit an opinion on christian pulisic he's just uh catching people's eye in england and then obviously people are like oh daryl likes the u.s national team um i'll i'll just text him for more information so i need to know on the scale of how positive this was was it a good four as in he is pretty good for an american or was it just i am impressed by him you make me pull up my messages (laughs) i'm fine with that oh simple okay i have been very impressed with pulisic all right, that'll work. I'm, yeah. I'm good with that. That is that is high praise since it's the English. Uh, I feel like his, historically, in my experience, have been like, "Oh, you guys play that over there? Oh, I didn't know that." <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right, but let's talk about the problem. We talked about two Chelsea yeah. goals, right? With Pulisic getting the unofficial assists, winning mm-hmm. the penalty kick and the free kick, but Chelsea lost three-two away to West Ham. Yarmolenko scoring in what the 89th minute, scoring the winner. Um, the question I pose to you, like to look into this. Why did Chelsea concede three goals? What is going on with Chelsea? I think what is going on with Chelsea can be explained by their transfer activity, which is that maybe their plan for the next couple of years is to win every game six to five, and they're just going to go full out attack because they are bringing attackers and they are not strengthening that defense. Right, so and Ziyech think, and Werner coming in, yeah. Yeah, and then there's like rumors of Kai Havertz, which would give them even even more attacking options. I doubt that materializes, but I would say they need to be looking at their defense a bit more because you saw vulnerabilities that I think were potentially on display against Manchester City exploited here because uh, the reporting I heard was that David Moyes was at that game, the Chelsea Man City game, and focused in on Chelsea's set-piece vulnerability and their vulnerability when committing numbers too far forward and leaving themselves vulnerable at the back. And that is basically how West Ham went about winning this game. Uh, and I think that set-piece vulnerability is very much on display for the goal that's disallowed and then for West Ham's opener as well. All right, but this is interesting. Um, so you talked about it in terms of like they're signing loads of attackers, mm-hmm. right? But the the weaknesses you just identified, they're not like individual problems where one player is not necessarily good enough. They sound mm-hmm. more like 
tactical problems or approach problems. And I would tend to more agree with that side of things. It's not okay. as if they just need to go out and spend $100 million um, or £100 million on a centre-back. It's more about what Frank Lampard is asking his defenders to do. Let me rephrase then, because I, I think I can split the difference there, which is that you can sort of commit your numbers forward if you have Virgil van Dijk as your center back. Yes. Like if you have that person who can handle the, I might be left exposed, but I, I have the ability and the confidence in myself to sort of split the difference. And then when that pass happens, I can close it down. I can cut off an angle. I can force them wide. I'm not going to get beat on a cutback. And I think if you want to play that sort of free-flowing attacking game that it seems like Chelsea wants to play, you have to have the defense who can sort of handle what that's going to put on them. And this game in particular, maybe it's just this game, but this game in particular made me wonder if Rudiger yeah. and Christensen can handle that. Yeah, so actually let's get to the illustrative illustrative example of sure. this. A thing that I think Chelsea do a little too much is send both fullbacks really far forward, like Alonso down the left mm-hmm. in this case, and Aspilicueta down the right, and just leave the two centre-backs on their own, right? So uh, Rudiger and Christensen were just back as the two centre-backs. And often, we talked before about like how Matic, the, the defensive midfielder, would slot in and form a back three for Manchester United. N'Golo Conte does not do that, right? N'Golo Conte essentially joins the attack in a trailing kind of way, and he'll try and win the ball high if there's mm-hmm. a turnover. But if he gets bypassed then it really is Rudiger and Christensen versus the entire rest of the opposition team. Mm-hmm. And I think you could really see that on the Yamalenko goal, right? That it's, yeah, the it's the 89th minute. It's 2-2 away from home. In I know West Ham are the, theoretically the inferior team, but it mm-hmm. is like a the West London derby, right? Chelsea, yeah. West Ham. There's definitely a thing of they were quite... Chelsea were just happy to really overcommit in attack and leave the two centre-backs exposed in the 89th minute. And they got exposed. And it's exactly like you said. You'd think maybe Van Dijk would have closed Yarmolenko and not... He essentially ran too far in the other direction, right? As he was trying to close him and let Yarmolenko step inside on his left foot. Maybe Virgil van Dijk doesn't make that mistake. Uh, but there's only one Virgil van Dijk is the unfortunate thing. So unless you're going to prize Virgil van Dijk away from Liverpool, you just can't leave your two centre-backs exposed in the 89th minute when you're not really chasing the game. Well, I... Agreed. I think, though, that like the other things we've seen as an example would be, say, if you have the pace of a player like Alfonso Davies, who can get back, and that is a thing that he utilizes if he does get caught too far forward, he has the speed to be able to get back, and then the defensive awareness and like cleverness to then force Timo Werner outside, which he did against Leipzig, or to just sort of know that he can stick to that defender. And if you watch Rudiger defending that counter... I feel like you can see that defensive concern of, am I fast enough? Am I going to be able to stay close enough? Is he going to cut on me? Is he, does he have that little bit of speed? And I think that's why he is a bit slow and why he does end up getting cut on is because I think he's trying to sort of make sure he gives himself a cushion, but then that cushion gets exploited. And so you could go with a little bit maybe just faster defenders and try that one. Uh, that's pretty route one thinking in my mindset, but that is a possibility. You could also have uh, Rudiger not 20 yards behind the line of play. That would also be helpful in not keeping everybody on. <laughs> side i've got to say i kind of love it though i love that for example that pulisic plays for this team that some Mm. young english players play for this team that there's an english manager and he is in the 89th minute sending both the fullbacks and n'golo kante (laughs) forward and just rolling the dice and going for it Mm -hmm. right frank lampard is kind of like all in let's go for this let's get crazy kind of coach he had a nice defensive game plan against manchester city so it seems maybe he'll take it he'll take the defensive thing more seriously when he knows the opposition will just destroy him given any opportunity but i i do love that he'll just roll the dice against west ham even though i don't necessarily think it's the most successful approach if you're looking to maximize your points from this game 
I have a question that initially started out as a joke and is now a question for you, Daryl. All right. Is there a possibility that a man like Frank Lampard, who spent a significant chunk of his time playing under a defensive manager like Jose Mourinho, when he becomes a manager, thinks, now we're attacking. I want to do attacks. We're going to attack. Yeah. I mean, and it's, you know, they're in fourth place in the Premier League. It's it's kind of working. All right, but here's here's my question then, because it feels like we're still sort of being like like praising Frank Lampard for what he's done and for the attacking play of Chelsea. But I'm also sort of confused by some of the decisions he makes in this game, because against Man City, it seemed as though they were in a zone defensively, and that's what leads to that Pulisic breakaway goal, is the sort of zonal setup and Pulisic staying at the top of the box to, box to pick up the loose yeah. ball. Yeah, Rudy Gouin's ahead, right, in a way that yeah. Here it felt like they were much more man-marking, and maybe that was because of what West Ham were doing. But weirdly, this is like the first time in my life that I've been like, oh, zonal marking would have worked way better, like for sure. <laughs> and, and here when they went with the man-marking, not only did it not work on the actual goal, but basically the exact same thing happened for the goal that was disallowed. So yes. twice they went for this weird, like aggressive man-marking system that they didn't use last week, and it doesn't work off. Or work out, excuse me. Uh, yeah, I was really confused by what was going on when Chelsea were defending corner kicks. It, mm. Part of it, I think, might be just a height mismatch. that they, And mm. that might be a, a wider problem. It's definitely a thing Mourinho would have never let happen, right? Um, but West Ham have their two big centre-backs, Diop and Ogbana, and they have two big central midfielders in Rice and Suchek. Um, and I think that might be part of what Chelsea are up against. Because if you name Chelsea's tall players, it's Rudiger, Christensen, Abraham, and we're kind of done, right? I, think I don't know how tall Aspilicueta is. He seems tall to me, but that also might be one of those things where I think he's tall and then he's like 5'10". Well, he wasn't, which is not short, but it's not tall. He wasn't tall enough to beat Suchek to that, but, to that first goal, right? No, and that's, that's where, like, you are correct that Jose Mourinho never would have let that team yeah. uh, like he would, have had, he would have had massive Ivanovic at right back. Yes. <laughs> but, but with that in mind, though, like, doesn't that then make sense to then go zonal? Because if you know that you're trying to defend yeah. somebody who's six inches taller than you, yeah. why would they sort of aggressively try to mark so them? So the, the one thing it looked like Chelsea were really concerned about was what we call the tactical column, right? Yeah, we Which, do. Uh, we've talked about this a lot since Euro 2016. Does it go back that far? Well, um, where it's essentially where West Ham yes, does. get all their big players, essentially, in a tight line and almost like uh, they're standing back... Uh, what, I don't know what to call this. They're standing almost like human centipedes, like pushed right up against each other. Right? That's an image. Um, at the That's top an of image. The, at the top of the box. So that you can't really man-mark them, right? Because they're just all next to each other in a tight line. Um, it's like they're in a queue and they're, they're really tightly up against each other. But then when the ball comes in, they all like burst in different directions and no mm-hmm. one knows which, which way each of the players is going. So it's really likely that you lose someone in that, in that madness, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think Chelsea were really concerned with that. And the reason I think they're concerned is because you saw Aspilicueta. Um, it was in the build-up to that that disallowed goal, right? The, the goal that was disallowed in the 30-something minute. Tries to insert himself somewhere in the column to try and physically man-mark, I assume, mm-hmm. uh, Suchek. And essentially failed to do so, right? There was just no way in. He could not insert himself into the tactical column. No, and, and, and this is where, like, again, the the this is where man-marking can be problematic is if you go overly into it and if you're so focused on on tracking your runner and grappling with them and making sure they don't get away there's a fine line you have to walk because obviously that can lead to a penalty but it can also lead to you're so overly focused on them that you're reacting to everything they're doing and you're giving them complete control to both react to the ball because they're going to be the one watching it while you're watching them but also sell you on a really hard run to the near post and then a check to the far post and and it's it just like 
it is as though Frank Lampard said, no matter what, don't lose your marks on a corner or you're never playing again. And so they were so focused on it that it was very much to their own detriment. And you, you can see it right on the Suchek header that he's attacking the ball and Aspilicueta is almost like, mm-hmm. he's, he's not, not, he's not like, it's not like he's not doing anything. Mm-hmm. He's essentially just jumping with Suchek because that's who he's decided he's sticking to and he's not yeah. attacking the ball. And that's, that's how they concede that goal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I don't know exactly how to pinpoint that problem, but it's definitely that Chelsea are not doing well um, on set pieces. Yeah, and, and I think the other thing there with them not doing well on set pieces combined with a height issue is that for the, I believe, the disallowed goal, it's uh, Kovacic is, I think, dealing with the zone at the near post, but I think steps to it a little bit too much and then maybe just doesn't have the full, full height to win it at the near post, and so it flicks off of his head and then goes to the back post. So maybe if you are going to go with zone, you do want that big person there to attack that ball and make sure it gets clear at the near post. And then maybe just be a little bit aggressive or less aggressive if you're going to go with like a hybrid zone man marking system. So maybe some Chelsea players just need lifts in their heels there we go. And, and stick to zonal marking as well. How about yep. that? Perfect. <laughs> All right. Before we move on to talk about a couple more Premier League games, Taylor, um, would you like to talk about Hydrant? Would I ever? I wasn't sure which one you were going to go with. Uh, yes, I would because, Daryl, once again, I've got a grapefruit hydrant in front of me. Do you? Lovely. I do. Whenever we record, I have one, not just for uh, opportunities like this, although that may seem like the only reason. It's because they're both delicious and also, as I've said before, break up my uh, pure caffeine consumption so that I don't uh, <laughs> turn into a raisin is, uh, is the way I go with it. So Hydrant is more than a flavoring mix, although it does have a nice flavor. I actually haven't mm-hmm. tried the grapefruit one. Uh, I, I assume it's nice and, uh, nice and zesty. Um, it's feels also, like a personal attack. It's also a rehydrating drink. It has a mix yes. of the four key electrolytes scientifically formulated to jumpstart the body's natural hydrating process. Mm-hmm. That would be sodium, potassium, magnesium, and zinc. Uh, what it doesn't have is big four. Uh, synthetic... Co- Those yeah. are the four Champions League, <laughs> Champions League electrolytes. What is what is the like the fifth electrolyte that's trying to get in there but ends up in the Europa League of hydrant? The Europa League electrolyte is I don't know. I was going to say salt, uh, but salt is sodium, right? Vitamin B. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no synthetic colors, no artificial sweeteners. It is also, of course, vegan. Uh, I, there are no, there's no uh, ground beef floating around in the hydrant. I can promise you that. So you don't have I to do. worry about that either. I, I genuinely like Hydrant, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I feel comfortable criticizing them. <laughs> and I also, I like their copy, but I feel like claiming that it's vegan is one of those things where, of, of course it is, right? It's like, it's a claim that doesn't need to be made, is what I'm saying. I think all I can figure is like, it's one of those, like, you know, like, like gelatin can have like hooves in it or whatever it is. I heard that when I was a little kid and I think it's true. Yeah. Um, it, it, it does, I'll, I'll put it this way. It is the type of advertising that like when water says gluten-free, I'm like, is is there water that isn't gluten-free? What, <laughs> yeah, exactly. what water have I been buying? Like, I get a little bit nervous more exactly. than anything else. So if, if it turns out that there are other hydration mixes that like, are yeah. non-vegan, then I owe Hydrant <laughs> an apology. There uh, is no poison in this, we promise. <laughs> like, uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, I had a hot sauce earlier that said, no high fructose co- corn syrup in this hot sauce. And I was like, yeah, it should be cayenne peppers and salt, right? Isn't that? Yeah, it should be, but we live we live in America. Hey, um, <laughs> anyway, hydrant yeah. has the electrolyte, tastes good, and comes in nice little packets that you can mix into your drink. Even mm. better, you can get twenty five percent off your first order if you go to drinkhydrant.com slash soccer. That's drinkhydrant.com slash soccer for twenty five percent off your first order. 
One more time, drinkhydrant.com slash soccer. Thank you very much to Hydrant for sponsoring this episode. And as always, hail Hydrant. <laughs> the wonderful vegans. Uh-huh. Uh, where shall we head next in the Premier League, Mr. Grove? Let's talk about Arsenal. So okay. we, we started off um, essentially uh, reviewing those couple of Arsenal games where things did not go well, right? I had been very optimistic about Arteta's Arsenal uh, with Project Restart. I was very quickly proven wrong with the two games that didn't go well where they lost to Man City, understandable. Brighton, not so understandable. Not but so much. Since then, Arsenal have won three in a row. They beat Southampton 2-0. They beat Sheffield United 2-1 in the FA Cup. And they beat Norwich 4-0 yesterday. So the question mm. I had for you is, what are Arsenal suddenly doing right? And if you watch the goals, are there any commonalities among the goals scored? You texted me or on the phone said earlier that, yes, you had found commonalities. So I'm interested so. to hear what they are. Because even going back to the Brighton game, a thing that I will give credit to the match of the day commentators spotlighted is that like the only thing that they could highlight as a positive was that the front three was was combining really, really well and getting forward aggressively. That if there was an opportunity for those three to move the ball quickly and get into the attack, they were taking it. It just didn't happen as often as Arsenal would have liked. Certainly not to the point where they won that game against Brighton. But that was really on display here against Norwich. As soon as Arsenal had the opportunity, there was no dilly-dallying. They weren't sort of slowly moving it from left to right and moving up the field. It is definitely advance as quickly as you can, score if that opportunity presents itself, but then establish the possession and then create your overloads. And that does feel much more like a Man Man City, Pep Guardiola team of get into the attack and if you you can't score right away, then move the ball quickly around the top of the opposition box until an opportunity presents itself. Does that seem like a, to me, that seems like a slight difference between how Guardiola asks his team to play and how Arteta is asking Arsenal to play is there is a bit less of the slow build-up and a bit mm-hmm. more of go direct first, like direct yeah. to feet or direct into space, like not just aimlessly direct. And then we maybe build from there if it doesn't come off immediately. Because yeah. um, the thing I noticed that really kept happening was um, a big ball out of the back from the goalkeeper or from David Luiz, um, who has actually looked decent this last couple of games, um, into that space for Aubameyang to cut in from the left and essentially be either in on goal or have an opportunity to square it to someone. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, over the top for Aubameyang to run onto down that left channel seems to be a pretty uh, common thing that Arsenal are doing. Mm-hmm. And then I think the way they are going about defending from the front is another thing that that has to maybe make Arsenal fans a yes. little bit happy because there's the one obvious here, commonality, right? Yeah, I mean the joke here is that like it's easy to beat a team when they provide all the assists which Norwich do twice in this game at least twice um but that's not just Norwich making mistakes that's the fact that like for the first one where Kroll tries to cut and does not do that at all it's not just that he's being lackadaisical or he's just sort of like like has too many options it's that all of his options like close slash medium close to him are marked off they cannot be passed to without them immediately coming under pressure and they're going to concede the ball there so he can go long for those those who didn't see this game Mm -hmm. right Aubameyang tackles Krul and scores yes yeah Yeah. that's how Arsenal take the lead but it's it's Arsenal basically blocking off those options so he then has to slow down and when he slows down it's when Aubameyang then aggressively pressures him and wins that ball so it seemed to me like the way they're setting up higher up the field is then leading to better opportunities for them so I think from an attacking standpoint Certainly, Arsenal starting to look a much more uh, consistent team. And for those who didn't see it, the a very, very similar goal happened against Southampton in that yeah. 2-0 win. Eddie Nketiah closes down the Southampton keeper. I think it was McCarthy in goal. I mean, first of all, the ball gets forced backwards by Arsenal pressure. Then Nketiah closes down the keeper. And um, I think that the keeper, McCarthy, just like 
bounces it off of Nketiah to score. I mean, it's, it's really, it's really, really similar to what Obama Yang and Krul do, right? So mm-hmm. it definitely has to be not just a coinkydink that this that this has happened, right? <laughs> I pronounced that correctly, didn't I? You absolutely did, and I think you are correct in your uh, estimation. Oh, and in that same game, in that Southampton game, this isn't a goal, but um, o- Obama Yang gets taken down by Stevens. Stevens gets a red card late in the game, and it's because um, Hoiberg has been forced into a really bad back pass by Arsenal pressure. That's what has put Stevens under pressure, like in a situation where Obama Yang is running running in behind him. So I think Arsenal are forcing um, forcing the ball backwards, marking off options, and then applying pressure right at the back to the goalkeeper or to the uh, central defenders and really making things happen that way. Mm-hmm. Um, can, can we talk about another player in particular that I very much enjoyed for Arsenal? Yeah, please do. I, I think also a big part of Arsenal's sort of rounding into be- much better form has been Danny Ceballos, who obviously scores yeah. the winner uh, against Sheffield United. But like from the outset in this game against uh, Norwich, and yes, it's Norwich, bottom of the table, whatever, you still got to beat the teams you're playing. Like he is all over the place and seems to be the midfielder that Arsenal fans have needed for so long because you can still have Granite Chaka in there and he can do the defensive work or score as he does. Uh, but Danny Ceballos, I think, has just been a sort of spark that has been needed and. I can't really go into it much more than that. I, I wish I had some great tactical analysis or some moment where he did something that somebody else hasn't done. It just tends to be that if somebody is putting out fires or like plays a great link-up pass, I can rest assured it's probably Danny Ceballos, and it usually tends to be. Yeah, I really like him. He's got this thing where he um, seems to be able to drift away from people when he's got the ball. Mm-hmm. Like he'll take that one touch that just he, he just creates this weird sort of like he bends his run as he's receiving the ball, if that makes sense, and yep. then he's suddenly away from people with with one touch. I think he's delivering a bit of the creativity that um, Ozil was supposed to bring if he ever <laughs> sets foot on the field. He didn't even make the bench for this last game, did he? No. Um, yeah, instead of talking about Ozil, I want to talk about a different player that it maybe isn't having the best of time. What did you make of Lacazette in this game? Because there's something to be said for if a forward is getting shots and getting chances and in the right position to shoot on goal, then it, maybe they're doing something, maybe they just had a bad day. But... Like, I, I was just contrasting Lacazette missing some chances and getting good opportunities and hitting them right at the goalkeeper with, like, the one, like, he scuffs an opportunity that is almost the exact same just on the opposite side as when Aubameyang scores yeah. uh, later on in the game. And just the sort of juxtaposition of those two things, or maybe it's even, yeah, it's, it's Aubameyang's goal. Or, uh, like, it just, it seemed like his lack of sharpness was very much on display in this game when Arsenal are sort of free flowing and score and winning by four 0 you would have expected him to get on the score sheet. I mean, maybe. I mean, maybe he's only just coming into fitness. Maybe that's why Inketia started the first few games. That could be. Um, mm-hmm. It could be that. I quite. I think Lacazette does a pretty decent job of just uh, back to goal connecting play and being a bit of a target to force mm-hmm. force balls into. There's a goal. I think it's against Sheffield United where he just receives a ball at the top of the box and gets fouled and wins a penalty that way. Um, I think there's a lot of that going on with Lacazette. Like he's not sharpening his finishing right now, but he's still got plenty to offer in terms of the the build-up play. So I think yeah, I, I think it's yeah. okay. I think okay. So that's a thing that I will then like keep an eye on as I watch more Arsenal as we get closer to the end of the season. Um, and then it will also just be telling if he continues to start because. There, you know, past his precedent, if he keeps doing or there has to be a rhyme or reason or whatever, like if he keeps getting the starts, even if he's not scoring, then it means he's doing the job that he's being asked to do. Yeah, but I don't know if we'll see if it's in Ketia. Um, who do they play? Oh, they play Wolves this weekend. It's, mm-hmm. it's Wolves this weekend. So, yeah, I'll, I'll definitely be watching Arsenal this weekend. Oh, will you? I certainly will. All right, then. <laughs> um, one more team I want to talk about. Mm. Everton. And the question okay. I had for you, 
Are Everton good? Are Everton good now? Um, since Project Restart, they tied Liverpool. Happening? They tied Liverpool, beat Norwich 1-0, and then they just beat Leicester City 2-1. So mm-hmm. has Ancelotti turned Everton into a good team? Yeah. Is it that simple? Yeah. <laughs> yes, it is. I mean, I think uh, looking at them again, it's just like, it is amazing how good of a manager Carlo Ancelotti is because that midfield pairing of uh, Gilfie Sigurdsson and Andre Gomes is not the one that you would have expected to like, get the win against Leicester but also look dominant against Leicester. Yeah. And it is a lot of the way he's setting them up and what he's asking the uh, quote-unquote wide attackers to do and be, which is come central and basically overload the midfield and then our fullbacks will push on. I mean, it's a solid strategy. It's what we've seen from him. In other, like with other teams in other places, but yeah, I think it's sort of you're 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 seeing why they brought him in. You're getting that sort of veteran manager who knows how to like, okay, we're going to basics, we're going to do this, and then we'll evolve from here next season. And yeah, I think we're seeing Everton rounding into form. It is the it is the age old Everton of of start weak, struggle a lot, finish strong. <laughs> but I think if Ancelotti stays, then I've got a feeling they'll be consistently strong. Um, Agreed. I think I agree with you that essentially what Ancelotti does is establish something quite basic but then yeah. have a few not complicated but just a few effective things built on top of it right because mm-hmm. the formation is a 4-4-2 right and the the strikers are kind of like big man fast man with Calvert-Lewin and Richarlison and that sounds really basic it sounds like the sort of thing that Duncan Ferguson would come up with but <laughs> but I think it, it's a little more complex the way that um, Calvert-Lewin is connecting with Richarlison and where Richarlison is allowed to go and where he roams and how that partnership works and yeah what he's asking the wide players to do do you remember we talked about against Liverpool they were tracking back with the fullbacks and just making mm-hmm. it impossible for Liverpool to um, establish dominance with their fullbacks like they normally do I think he's very good at having little tweaks and instructions for each specific game to make things work yeah so like here's here's my question then for you there's um there's i forget what the phrase is or what the term is but there's a thing that can happen where like if you're in a hospital and the doctors don't know quite what's wrong with you they'll give you this medicine and they'll give you that medicine and there can be a thing where like the medicines themselves and the side effects then seem like they're part of the disease and you almost have to like let the medicines clear out before you can like resume treatment and that analogy sticks with me when I watch Everton because they've had so many managers in the last five years or so who have different systems and styles of play and you've got to do this and you've got to do that and everything we know about Carlo Ancelotti is that he sort of is a bit more laid back is a bit more like okay we're not going to overly complicate this I'm going to let my star players be star players and I'm going to let everybody else do the job they need to do to facilitate winning and that's what that felt like to me it felt like sort of not I'm not trying to like like, just like you had hurts Tylenol that's it. Go <laughs> right, exactly. Exactly. Like, we don't need to overly complicate this. Are you tired? <laughs> Go to bed. Like, uh, like, and I, like, I'm not. And like, that is. There is that idea of like simplicity itself can be very, very difficult. And getting a team that has lots of different, like, disparate parts and have been assembled by multiple different managers to get them all playing one cohesive style can be really challenging. And to some extent, simplifying it and then. Like accentuating it with star performers seems to be the most logical thing, and he seems to be the manager who's very, very good at doing that. Then again, I do just, just sort of also love Carlo Ancelotti. <laughs> It'll be interesting. We talked about Manchester United's depth earlier. Mm-hmm. I know Richarlison came out of the game mm-hmm. against Leicester, and he went to like a four-five-one, right? I want to say Davies mm-hmm. came in, and they just played five midfielders for the rest of the game. But if Richarlison is out for a game or two, I'd be interested to see what Everton look like. Like how much of it is dependent 
un Richarlison having that sort of threat, that dribbly threat, that scoring threat um, in conjunction with Calvert-Lewin? Like, is, is that just a magical mm-hmm. partnership or will Ancelotti have an answer for that as well? I'd be, I'm really I, interested to see what happens there. I don't know what the answer is going to be. I think they would struggle pretty hard without Richarlison just because there were moments in this game. Like, I, I think there's one where Calvert-Lewin, like, whole, like basically the ball goes, gets played wide. Calvert-Lewin makes a, a darting run to the near post, but the ball doesn't get delivered. And now he's sort of eliminated himself from the play. Contrast that with uh, Richarlison's goal. As soon as the ball goes out wide... Everybody starts sort of committing, like, moving forward. Richarlison stops. Like, doesn't dead stop, but really slows down. And the defense uh, for Leicester completely backs off because they're expecting this cross to come in. And then by the time the cross comes in, that's when Richarlison is at full speed and meets it perfectly yes. for that finish for the opener. And it's a great ball in from Gordon. But that just yeah, moment of like, oh, Anthony Gordon, by the way. Like, he's yeah. really come from nowhere and been like a regular starter after Project Restart. Yeah, there you go. Carlo Ancelotti. He loves people named Anthony, apparently. I don't know. That's the best I could come with. Um, But just that sort of, like, anytime you can see a striker identify the space and identify where space is going to open up and then exploit it perfectly, it is just such a fun thing to watch. And I think Richarlison is exceptionally good at that. Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, Mm. I I agree. I agree. Um, All right, so... (laughs) End of monologue. (laughs) End of monologue. No, but it was correct. I think it's a really important thing because I kept saying, like, there's the Calvert-Lewin-Richarlison partnership without giving an example. That goal is a perfect example, right? Because it's Calvert-Lewin that is pushing all those defenders towards goal and it's Richarlison who's identified that that's going to open up space Mm -hmm. just in front of those defenders. Yeah, all right. So there we go. Carlo Ancelotti, uh, genius. Uh, And then I guess the narrative now is Brendan Rodgers, terrible manager who they should replace. I mean, they're still in the top four, right? It's, it is it is so strange to me. And this is the, like the the problem with – I heard Luke Moore talk about this. Like it's the problem with doing shows so regularly is that they lend themselves to the hot takiness. And I saw like a couple different outlets be like, Rogers in crisis, Le- Lester in crisis, like owners doubting whether Rogers can – it's just like, no, they're not. They're not yeah. doubting him at all. He's done an exceptional job. Everybody calm down. And honestly, not to – I don't want to really get this, but you know we had that mm-hmm. conversation the other day about are Arsenal still a big club? There was mm-hmm. definitely me thinking – and I was obviously arguing against it. They they just lost two games. You know what I mean? Let's not let's not all panic whenever there's a, a small losing streak for any team. No, we have to panic. That's the rules. <laughs> it's, that that, them's the rules, Daryl. Yes. Absolutely. And like, I, I did enjoy there was one that was talking about how he's not able to get the best. It really was. I saw this with an English tabloid. He hasn't been able to get the best out of James Madison lately. And it's like, oh, the guy who's been injured and not played? <laughs> like, yes, that is correct. <laughs> Good stuff, guys. So not, Good research. They're not incorrect. <laughs> that's, that's true. He's, he is not getting the best out of him while he's injured. <laughs> so therefore, get it together, Brendan. All right, we have four listener questions. Mm-hmm. And so this show doesn't run long. I feel like we should hit them kind of fast. What do you think? That works for me. All right. Well, let's first uh, talk about a sponsor. Today's show is yep. sponsored by Manscaped. Uh, if you, are you prepared to unveil your summer bard? I am not. But, <laughs> but if I was, Manscaped would be here to make sure my summer bard wasn't all hairy. I'm going to take a tangent for a moment to say that for the people who are ready to unveil their summer bods uh, because they have been exercising and eating properly during this time period, I have zero patience for you. (laughs) And uh, I don't need to hear from you because, no, I'm not ready. But uh, it's not entirely because of manscaping. But I will say that, you know, you do want to look good if you're going to be at the beach. Nobody wants, like, the the full-on patch of, like, back hair that makes it impossible to see the Mm -hmm. skin. And you probably don't want that in other areas either. And, again, that's where Manscaped come in and make you feel just a little bit more groomed, a little bit sleek, uh, maybe a little bit 
bit more ready for the summer. No back air, no front air. If you get nah. the perfect package 3.0 kit, it comes with the essential lawnmower 3.0, waterproof cordless body trimmer, and a ton of other liquid formulations to round out your manscaping routine. But Taylor, what if you've been listening to the Total Sock Show for a while, and you've heard Manscaped ads for a while, mm-hmm. and you're in Canada, and you've been uh, thinking, I'll nope. buy that, I'll buy that, but mm-hmm. then you couldn't, you couldn't get it in Canada? No. We have good news for those people, right? Yeah, they, they, they don't like Canadians. It's how it works. That used to be true, but Manscaped <laughs> has just launched in Canada. The Manscaped people have done an about turn. They suddenly love Canadians. If you're a Canadian and you've gone years without using the right tools for the job, you can be one of the first Canadians to experience the life-changing products of Manscaped. I do understand that you might want to stay hairier because it gets a little bit colder up there in Canada, but the summer's here, mm. so at least temporarily it's going to be warmer. Uh, Dale, I've told you before, I've been watching that show alone where they drop contestants off in like the middle of the wilderness. It tends to be the Canadian wilderness. Is that right? And they're, they're allowed to bring 10 products with them that can be like fishing lures or like a fire starter. I wish somebody brought like a manscape trimmer with them just to be like, <laughs> I, I need to keep things. I don't need to be look so bushy when I'm out in the wild. So I, I don't want hair growing out of my ears. You know, I don't want any chafing issues. And again, that would probably be a good product to bring with you. The, the lawnmower 3.0. It, uh, it can handle everything you could throw at it. It's cordless. It's waterproof. You don't have to plug it into an outlet. So, you know, if you're out in the wilderness, it's got you covered there. Well, the what those alone people need to know is that you can uh-huh. get 20% off and free shipping if you use the code TSS20. That's TSS20 at manscaped.com. That's 20% mm-hmm. off with free shipping at manscaped.com. Excuse me. Use the code TSS20 and all will be good. All will be good. All is good because we're moving on to listener questions, and it's always fun when we get to do that. Daryl, first question comes from Kenneth Seiden. Do you think the NWSL made a mistake by signing a TV rights agreement that places their games behind a paywall, especially given CBS All Access has the least subscriber base of all the streamers? No. I think the CBS All Access deal is is a good move. I Agreed. really, really do. Yeah, because... Not, not least because, it, okay, it's a streaming service, right? CBS All Access. But it also comes with a deal where the season opener and the championship game are on the main CBS network and 14 games are on the CBS Sports Network. Um, already, we have the result that the, the opening game of the NWSL Challenge Cup, um, so that was, it was North Carolina Courage against Portland Thorns. Um, it had that late winner, right? It got 527,000 viewers on CBS, setting an NWSL record. So this has mm-hmm. already paid off in terms of the, um, we'll put you on broadcast TV part of the deal. Yeah. To, to the CBS All Access part of it, I think it's really worth comparing to where NWSL was streamed before. And it was Go90, which almost never worked. And it was Yahoo Sports, which was at the very least a bit choppy and always really hard to find on the Yahoo Mm. website. My experience so far with CBS All Access, um, uh, NWSL is easy to find. It's one of the main things on their menu when you log in. Um, and that it has never let me down so far, right? The stream has never failed. Um, it's never failed to archive, and then you can find it later. So, so far, I think everything's good with CBS All Access. The only time it let me down was when the game wasn't on what it said it was, and then I checked it again and realized that I had not seen that it was Pacific time. So that's the only <laughs> that's the only real time that they've let me down, and that was probably my own fault. Um, probably. I, I am... I am, I am, well, you never know. Maybe, maybe, eh, no, it was my fault. Um, <laughs> I am a millennial. I'll throw that out. I know that to Zoomers, that means I'm a boomer, but I am going to sound like a boomer when I say there's also something to be said for NWSL being affiliated with CBS. That yeah. for a league that, like, like, has struggled historically to get sponsors, has struggled to get, like, eyes on 
its players on its competition itself to be with CBS where you are going to have some that are nationally broadcast, but you're also going to be part of that package. Like, I think that is good for them as opposed to having a bunch of different streaming options and this game is going to be here, but next season it's going to be there and it might not work and it's going to be on Hallmark, but sometimes it's not. I think to have the consistency and the sort of just knowing it's going to be in one location is definitely a massive strength. I also think this makes sense for CBS, right? Because um, as Kenny said, it does have one of the lowest subscriber bases because it's a relatively new service, right? CBS All Access. But for example, we signed up for it. You know, there's a Total Soccer Show subscription now to CBS mm-hmm. All Access because of NWSL. So it's essentially NWSL is one of the things that they're using to bring people to the service. And coming definitely in a couple of years, but maybe even sooner, given what's happened with the uh, the Turner deal, um, yep. you might have more soccer fans come in who are coming for the UA for Champions League coverage, which will be on mm-hmm. CBS All Access, right? So it's actually, I think it's a good partnership because um, CBS is looking for subscribers and NWSL has, um, I guess what you'd call a niche audience, right? When you think of it as like a, a US-wide TV audience, mm-hmm. it kind of makes sense for CBS to lure those people in to be like the place where we broadcast NWSL. USL. And if they're doing a reliable job of it, then everybody's happy. That makes sense to me. Like, because you could you me. could put it on Netflix, and yeah, theoretically, more people have access to it because more people have Netflix. But then it's just buried on Netflix somewhere. And like you said, there's no access to then a network TV broadcast for some of the bigger games. And also, that would still be behind a paywall. Yeah, so, exactly. I mean, yeah. If, yeah, fundamentally, like it's going to be behind a paywall in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, and especially for me, like. I, I only watch streaming stuff at this point, and I'm not saying that I should be the only like person they care about, but I think a lot of people aren't as worried about broadcast television as opposed to the streaming services they do already pay for and, and making it like that much more appealing. And yeah, with CBS, they're likely going to have the cha- – or they will have the Champions League, but they might have it sooner, and they're probably going to expand from there. There's talk of them going after other international competitions. So I think it's, it makes sense to jump on board early and be part of that branding now. Yeah, so we're all in on CBS All Access. Um, yeah. And so, so Kenneth, basically we don't think it's a mistake. I think it's a, I think it's a good move. We don't know how much CBS paid for the NWSL, but they seem to have paid something, right? We just don't know the details of, uh, of what the deal was. Ready for the next question, Taylor? Um, is the check from CBS coming today, or how does that work exactly? It's in the mail. It's in the All mail. right, cool. Yes, next question then. Yoshio Drescher asks, should Weston McKenney stay at Schalke next year? If he moves, which Premier League club would make an ideal destination? So we have talked about this before, Taylor, right? Because we talk about mm. Weston McKenney's future quite a lot. But this big news out of Schalke, I think this news dropped yesterday, and our listeners may not have heard it. And essentially, to me, it's news that makes a Weston McKenney transfer more likely for one reason or another. All right. So let, let, let's break it down. And by let's break it down, I mean, Daryl, can you summarize? Because my summaries tend to take longer than the episode itself. So. Okay. So the, the summary of the news is that Schalke chairman Clemens Tonis has stepped down as chairman after 19 years. Um, the marketing director, Alexander Jobst, said on Wednesday that Schalke spent heavily in a bet on the future, but ran into trouble when it repeatedly failed to qualify for European competitions. Yup said the club would hit, quote, the stop button, unquote, on investments, would cut spending on salaries, and wouldn't expect to fight for European quali- qualification for up to three seasons. I also mm-hmm. read a report that said they're essentially going to have a salary cap, like a per-player salary cap of 2.5 million euros per season. So... Schalke are going to really, really pull back. And it looks Mm -hmm. like the combination of exactly what they mentioned, which is like spending big, expecting to make European competition, and then you kind of get some of your money back, right? Combined with, obviously, coronavirus has big financial implications. 
just means that Schalke have looked at what's going on and said the only way we survive is if we just like essentially have some austerity measures yep. come in. I think they've got and I think- David Cameron and George Osborne, George Osborne in charge of this. That's a joke for all our British let's, listeners. Let's let's hope they don't, because <laughs> um, that might not work out so well. But I I think like well, the Western McKinney issue Europe, aside, so it- this is true. Um, <laughs> that was a good one. Um, uh, so Weston McKinney aside for a moment, I actually think this is a smart decision by Schalke because where they have been is sort of a team that. We keep having that conversation. I keep having that conversation with uh, with Manuel when he's on the show of like, why aren't they doing better? Why we expect them to be this big team? We know they can make it far in the Champions League on occasion, and they're not doing that. And I think there's still that expectation. And if you publicly come out and say like that should not be your expectation anymore, you are sort of redefining who you are as a club. And it does then free them up to, for those austerity measures, as you said, to sort of simplify the budget, to slow it down. They can find that stability. They can be comfortably mid, mid-table, mid and that's okay for them. You get things where you need to be, and then long-term you can build back up. It makes sense from a business standpoint. But then with that said, it does not make sense for Weston McKinney to be there anymore, in my opinion. Well, the bad news, or maybe the good news, I don't know, is that Weston McKinney has a contract, recently-ish signed new contract, that keeps him there until 2024. Mm-hmm. The reason that might be good news is that it does mean that he has quite a high value that Schalke could finally sell a player instead of letting them leave on a free. That would be definitely <laughs> beneficial for them. Maybe I love how they said that, like, oh, a few of our like plays didn't work out. It's like, oh, you mean uh, signing people, selling them, or letting them go for free and then not really replacing them? Yep. That was your big plan for the future? Cool, cool, cool. Hey, yeah, Schalke shouldn't be losing Max Meyer to Crystal Palace, right? That is not how no. things should be going. Daniel Caligiuri just left and joined Augsburg. There's lots of players already leaving. So I mean, Briel Embolo going to Br- like Borussia Mönchengladbach should have been a lateral move, and it's not. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There you go. Anyway, to, to Weston. Weston has a contract mm-hmm. until 2024, but there are rumours that like he could leave for roughly 25 million euros or so, which you know is not a massive fee. It's affordable for some teams. The rumour I keep seeing is Hertha Berlin, because at the same time that Schalke were announced that they were tightening their belts, Hertha Berlin announced that they were adding an extra notch to their belt and loosening it up. <laughs> <laughs> well, so uh, so then is that rumor, is that sort of feeling, is it just sort of, well, they don't have money and they do, so go there? Or do you feel like there are like enough concrete links that that There's, feels like a thing that could happen? Uh, the coach, whose name is what, Labia? Um, mm-hmm. ha- no, Labadia. Labadia, excuse me, excuse mm-hmm. me, Labadia, um, had said, my apologies to Labadia, um, when he was the Wolfsburg coach, apparently. You have a Labrador, it's fine. Yeah, when he was the Wolfsburg coach, apparently he had been interested in signing Weston McKenney. So it's at least someone who is on Labadia's radar. So that that's why that move does possibly make sense. Mm-hmm. Okay, so... I I wouldn't hate that because Hertha seem like the club that are going to be spending the money. They've already uh, brought in some talent, and then Lucas Luca Tussar will be joining them. Like they're going to have a, a good squad there. That would be fine, and maybe they will be competing for Europe, which would also be fine. But if we go to the Premier League perspective, Daryl, oh, because that is was your club... question, right? Yeah, yeah, is there a particular Premier League club that you wouldn't mind seeing him end up at? So I've already said in the past that the place that I think he would fit the best is Southampton. Mm-hmm. Right, yep. because Hoiberg might be on the way out because because Southampton play this like pressing, energetic game where a, a lot of running is asked of the midfielders and a lot of springing quick counter attacks is asked of the midfielders. I think it suits Weston McKenney down to the ground to play at West. Uh, sorry, at Southampton. Mm-hmm. But there's also part of me that thinks the way that Pulisic has performed at Chelsea and the form that McKenney has been in, I'm just feeling confident and wondering what happens if Weston McKenney joins Arsenal. I don't know, because is he, is he good enough on the ball 
to satisfy Mikel Arteta? Is he, is he going to do enough of the technical side of the game that will make him a regular player, or will he end up being a frustrating player because he needs to retain it and he gives it up maybe one or, to- one or two times too many? Well, the thing that Arteta has been asking, play- asking of players seems to be a high level of effort, right? And that mm-hmm. seems to be where Ozil and maybe even Gendouzi, who's been noticeably absent mm-hmm. recently, um, have fallen down. And less from it, I'm not answering your question, really. I'm, I'm answering it with a slightly different answer. No, um, I, think, no less, I think you've given it an answer. It's coachability. Yeah, yeah. but uh, yeah, less from a technical perspective and more of a personality and commitment perspective. And the sort of pressing defensive style that we seem to have identified when we talk about commonalities among recent Arsenal goals, I think McKenney might be a good fit, right? And yeah, mm-hmm. his competition would be Shaka, Gendouzi, Lucas Torreira, who's just coming back from injury, I think. And maybe the aforementioned Ceballos, who, lest we forget, is on loan and is not necessarily going to be an Arsenal player next season. I honestly don't know the answer. Like, I watch McKenney some days and I think, yeah, he could just start for Arsenal tomorrow. I watch him other days and I think, mm, I don't know, maybe like if he's going to the Premier League, maybe a lower down team would be better just to guarantee that he plays. Yeah, I, yeah but I think you're right, though, Daryl, that like probably the player's perspective matters or the player's mentality certainly matters and if you're Mikel Arteta and you're looking at Weston McKinney who maybe doesn't do exactly what you want him to do right away but if you it's like the, the people who hate working with like the directors who make you shoot a thing 60 times there are certain people who are like yeah I'll do it differently this okay I'll adjust it this way and they really thrive off that and there are people who are like we've done that 60 times I hate this I don't want to do this anymore <laughs> and I feel like Weston McKinney from everything I understand of him from everything I have seen from him and then heard about him would be fine with that would be like okay yeah more like do this don't do that do this don't do that like I think would embrace that a bit more and I think it's a valid point that like does Mikel Arteta want somebody who is perfect right away yes but can he afford them probably not so then it's like does he want somebody who's going to work really really hard and have that goal and be able to sort of embrace that idea yeah that probably appeals more than Mesodozio who maybe rolls his eyes when he's asked to do that drill again and here's my other question have we ever seen Weston McKinney surrounded by really top-end players in a really ambitious team? And the answer is no, right? I think you know the teams he plays for, my friend. Exactly. So I, I really think we've never seen McKenney in a situation where he's not one of the best players, if that makes sense. So I'd, I'd yeah. be really interested to see like Weston McKenney alongside... like. Obama Yang and uh, and maybe uh, maybe Granite Shaka or, or Sabayas or someone like that. I'd be interested to see if it brings even more out of him. Yeah, I, I think where I am with him, and like I'm I'm just trying to figure out why that doesn't feel realistic to me. And I think this is where it is. And I welcome you to say like ah, I don't agree, but like I think it's he is at a point where he he would be fairly expensive not like the most expensive player certainly not probably in the top half of players that are going to be signed, but still pretty expensive. But simultaneously, like not head and shoulders above the team, not so good at any one thing that you know exactly what you're getting. And I feel like those two things, he's not quite like under the radar enough that Arsenal could get him for 15 million or something like that. Maybe they could, in which case it's probably a good move. 25, but if 25 million euros was the figure I kept seeing. I don't know how accurate that is. That's just the figure that's being bounced around. But see, like, I, again, that's not that much given the current market, but then simultaneously given the actual current market of a pandemic uh, event, like, is that high for Weston McKinney for a club like Arsenal? Like That's where I feel like he might not end up getting as many looks just because he seems to be, in my mind, in this weird middle zone. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. All right. Okay. Ne- All right. Next question. Mm-hmm. Um, Scott Silari wants to know, which teams are being promoted from the championship? What does the race for these spots look like? And also, of the teams that are coming up, which ones are most likely to do well? So there, is, there are, what, six games to go in the championship, Taylor? Which teams are coming up? 
It seems pretty likely that it will be Leeds United and West Brom. We'll, we don't know, though. Yeah. West Brom had did not start in the strongest uh, form. They've only won one of their last five, but that win did just happen, so that's positive for them. Uh, but they've currently got a five-point lead ahead of Brentford, who are in third, and then lots of teams could be in those playoff spots. But as of now, it seems Leeds and West Brom are should feel somewhat confident, uh, but not that confident, uh, which means more Midlands teams for Daryl and more Marcelo <laughs> Bielsa for Daryl. I, I feel like you're maybe happier about Bielsa than you are West Brom. Yeah, I mean, so West Brom is just a problem for me just because it's a team that introduces like, the derby element to a Wolves match, which just makes it a little mm-hmm. more unpredictable, if that if that yep. makes any sense. I don't have really have any animosity towards West Brom, but I feel like it's a threat to Wolves because it introduces this we- weird game twice a season that could cost mm-hmm. Wolves points. Um, yeah, that makes sense. Um, I also... Honestly, the current West Brom team, I just don't know that much about them. I feel like I know a bit more um, about Leeds. And I feel like Leeds have a very specific style. And that style is uh, Bielsa ball, right? For the famous, Mm -hmm. Marcelo Bielsa is the coach. It's a high-pressing style. And it's about spreading the field and moving the ball quickly when when you have it. I think because they have this very defined style... And there's a team that's gone through at least two seasons of Marcelo Bielsa coaching, coaching it into thing. them. Yep. yeah. And they've got the players that can do it, right? Guys like Calvin Phillips, who maybe doesn't have a high profile right now. He's like the distributor in central midfield. That feels to me like exactly the type of name that no one will know right now if they only watch the Premier League. But like two months into the Premier League next season, a lot of people will be talking about Calvin Phillips. You know what I'm saying? That's fair. I do... I will also say, like, I have not, I certainly haven't watched, like, a ton of leads. I've seen highlights of leads in preparation for this question. But are you where I am that it was sort of like you would have expected around December, like, oh, Bielsa left. Okay, yeah, that feels about mm-hmm. right. Like, that, that they didn't get promotion last year, and then he's still there, and they are still now top of the table, seem likely to get promotion this time around. Like, that says to me that they're going to be okay next season as well, that they've got this identified style of play and that they seem to be embracing it enough that well, there hasn't been the sort of falling out, there hasn't been that blowout. Yeah, from what I can tell, the times when Bielsa has left is when the team is just performing badly and he mm-hmm. just feels like no one's getting his ideas and no one's listening yep. to him anymore. So even though Leeds didn't get promoted last season, they still had a you know a good season. They were like you know the favoured team in most games, if that makes sense, even though yep. they didn't get promoted. And the same thing has happened now. I do worry that like they get promoted and maybe they maybe they're in, they have a bad start to the season. It wouldn't surprise me if we see one of those Bielsa blowouts where he he leaves in November or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, but we could have that next year and then that's fine. Yeah, but I I I kind of expect that they'll be successful because they'll probably strengthen, but they'll probably strengthen in a smart way with players that fit that system. I feel like any team that essentially has a system like Sheffield United did when they came up, like Wolves did when they came up, I would back them more to to be successful the following season. I have. The one disconcerting thing, in my opinion, do you know who leads his top goal scorer is? Is it Patrick Bamford? It's Patrick Bamford, who's a player that I think we have both made different predictions with him playing with different teams about how many goals he was going to score, yeah. expecting it to be the year that he finally caught fire in the Premier League, and that has not happened. And there is, like, we don't go so much into this idea that often, but, like, there is something to be said for, like, maybe he is very good in the championship and struggles in the Premier League. It could just be that he was in bad situations. I mean, people still say Josie Altador is the worst forward ever, even though he got zero service and had zero support. So maybe it's been that for Patrick Bamford. But that is maybe, like, my one red flag that goes off when I look at that Leeds team. I mean, that's the question, right? Is it that just maybe mm-hmm. Bamford was waiting for Bielsa this whole time? It could, that's, that's definitely what it was. It could be just that. It could be just mm-hmm. that. I, I don't have much to say about West Brom. I can't say that I'm familiar with them. I will say that I'm interested in Brentford. Because 
So they are, what, five points behind West Brom right now, so they may have to go through the playoffs. But Brentford are a fascinating team because their owner, uh, Matthew Benham, has been running the club for a few years um, in a way that relies heavily on analytics. He doesn't like it being compared to Moneyball, but it is kind of this idea where he's running this team and not going after big-name transfers. He's going after transfers that, you know, the numbers bear out that this might be a good investment. I'm just interested in seeing that in the Premier League. I don't know if it works. I do know that it will be at least an interesting new storyline if Brentford go to the Prem. I mean, and thus far it has worked. I believe I'm correct in saying that they have scored the most goals of anybody in the championship, and that's with yeah. players like Ollie Watkins, who's 24, and Brian Mbueno, who's 20. Uh, Mbueno, excuse me, I said that too fast. Uh, but like right there, I think sometimes when you think Moneyball, and maybe this is what he's trying to get away from, you think of players who are sort of overlooked or underrated, or this David Justice veteran who's on his way out, but he can still give us a few numbers. And it sort of always is like, oh, the scrap heap of players who were rejected versus having a 24-year-old as your top scorer and one of the top scorers in the league is a thing that most teams would really, really love to have happen. And it seems like he's finding good value that is still young, that either has resale value or can be with the club for a long time and give them that stability. And then they have Saeed Benrama, who I'm now obsessed with. I sent you that video, right? Yeah, so I wasn't familiar with him. after. Nor was I. Weirdly... I know sometimes I'm looking for phrases to use. There's a phrase mm-hmm. that popped into my head like without me looking for it. The Zidane of the Pennines is what I thought of when I, when I saw him play. I love that. Um, the the thing that I saw that made me start looking at him is there's a story about him, I believe, for The Guardian today. And the quote about him is, he's a man who could nutmeg a mermaid. And that was <laughs> terrific. And I was like, well, now I want to know what he does. Is he one of those guys? And it goes all the way back to the thing I was saying earlier of like, it is a lot of step overs. It's a lot of really clever flicks and tricks and feints one way and throwing the defender off. But then the strange thing, and the reason why I'm like, why is this guy not 40 million pounds, is that there's the end product too, that he seems to score a lot of goals from a lot of different angles and sets up his teammates to score a lot of goals. And they're in equal measure, that it's not him trying to take eight people on and getting stuff. Maybe that does happen, and I'm just not focusing on it. But it seems like every time he does do three step overs and then gets a shot off, he also will do three step overs and then square for an equally like high percentage shot. It seems like he makes smart choices while being flashy. So I just took a quick look at his career. It seemed like they found him playing for some like small French team. I don't know if it was mm-hmm. Ligue 1 or Ligue 2, uh, but it, you know he was not at a big French team when they signed him. So that seems like someone has found him under the radar. Yeah. Um, do you agree with my Zidane comparison? Because yes, and, and I mean this really sincerely. That comparison popped in my head before I knew that he was Algerian. Right. So this is just purely on just watching those highlights. The style of play just seemed very, very similar. Like the way he just say- could pivot in tight spaces. Yeah. I would say like Zidane with like maybe 20% Dino thrown in. And I'm like, I know that's like a lot of hype, but just some of the like the one where he like outside of the foot flicks it over his own head and the defender's head. If you saw that one, like that feels like a Dino, like I'm just doing stuff to dunk on you sort of moment. <laughs> uh, but then he has. Dino the, is, of course, like, Dean Windass, right? Yes, obviously. <laughs> The man we all know of as having incredible technical control. <laughs> um, but yeah, but then to your point, it's the, the, the Zidane, like efficiency of movement and the tight control and the vision and awareness. Yeah, I think it's a great analogy or a great comparison, rather. Can we hear his name one more time just so people know to look out for him? Saeed Benrama, B-E-N-R-A-H-M-A. Since you sent it to me, I've got to put that highlight video in the uh, show notes, right? So people can take a me. look for themselves. Mm-hmm. So the, uh, the uh, TLDR answer to Scott's question is probably Leeds and West Brom and we hope Brentford through the playoffs and Leeds seem the most equipped to do well 
They do. The last thing I have to uh, point out, I'm legally required to, I believe. Uh, a team that is currently not in the playoff spots but could get there would be Derby County with Wayne Rooney and Dwayne Holmes. That would also be of phenomenal course. to get them into the Premier League, but that would more than likely require, I mean, I think it will require them, short of going on a perfect run, is getting through the playoffs, which can be a slog. Aren't they on an absolute tear since Rooney joined? That is the case. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So Rooney and Dwayne Holmes in the Premier League would be mwah. Chef's kiss. Chef's they kiss. have won. I just checked it. They have won every single game since the restart. Wow. Okay. Let's make it happen, Wayne. <laughs> Final question. You ready? Yes. Richard uh, Rolson. Yeah, I... Sure, go ahead. Richard Rolson says, yes, I have actually been a fan of the expansion to five substitutes in the matches that have resumed amid the COVID-19 outbreak. Who has the authority to keep this change? So to make the five subs permanent. Do individual leagues or FIFA have final authority on setting the number of subs? And if it goes back to three, could leagues make limited changes, say the Premier League doing the always congested holiday fixtures? So Richard basically wants to know, who has the authority to make the five subs permanent? And could the Premier League do it like in a limited basis, like just over, say, the, uh, that, that holiday period where there's lots and lots of games? I'm going to be totally honest. This is one of those ones where I was like, I think I know the answer to this and did not delve any deeper. So, Daryl, I'm going to assume you did, but I'm going to answer it with, I believe it's IFAB who can make that the official rule. Is that correct? It is. The way that the, um, the current version worked is that um, FIFA proposed that, you know, we should let everybody use five subs if they want when, when we restart and there's this weird football period. But then IFAB had to approve it. Um, but they worked in unison where FIFA proposed it and IFAB just like made it top of their agenda and were like, yep, approved, done, go for it. So it's IFAB that has ultimate authority on the rules of the game, including allowing five subs on a temporary basis. Mm -hmm. There we go. Um, And we have seen it in other leagues. Like, they had it in USL for a period of time. I can't remember if that was because of a trial, like if they were trialing it there, or if it was just sort of they got special dispensation or just did it because they wanted to. But (laughs) I think you can have it in individual leagues, but it requires, I think, uh, authorization from the powers that be. Yeah, and so the the way this worked this time is FIFA suggested it, IFAB approved it, and they made it so that... The, the temporary amendment was that leagues can do this if they want to, right? It's mm-hmm. at the discretion of each individual competition organizer. Um, but it ends with competition that ends in 2020, right? So right. Um, after this temporary authorization expires, the Premier League couldn't just suddenly decide, oh, we're going to do this next season as well. And then you wouldn't, if, you, if they did that, they wouldn't be in line with FIFA laws, right? So mm-hmm. they would need um, IFAB to expend, extend it in order for the Premier League to do it going forward. That's the. Uh, does that make sense? Is the basic setup yeah. of the hierarchy of who gets to decide? Um, it does. Do we want this to happen on a permanent basis? Uh, it, it makes our lives harder. It definitely makes it harder to like cover the games and know who's who's in and who's out. And that there's two more subs. That means four more players coming in. Um, and it makes it much harder, I'm sure, to write match reports. But also, yes, I definitely want it to happen because, number one, that's not a good enough reason. But the biggest thing for me is just it allows for experimentation. I think I talked about this with Ryan that if it's like we used to praise Pochettino all the time when he was with Spurs for changing things up inside the first 30 minutes and then making us up at halftime. And the big reason why that was such a gamble is because you're making changes really early. You're burning those subs and you've kind of got to like roll the dice and hope that that works out. If you have two more additional substitutions, you can roll those dice a bit more and you get almost more of a chess match in my mind. Yeah. You get If you're two managers who want to adjust to what the other one's doing, you have more opportunities to do that and it makes it more intriguing. I think I'm in, yeah. I mean, at least in the short term, I'd like to see it maybe just for 
any competitions that happen in the nearish future. Because I don't know if you've noticed, but coronavirus isn't over. So there are still oh, no? going to be all kinds of strange things happening in soccer for, um, for as long as it takes, right? Um, but this might be one of those things that we just get used to and maybe realize that it was time for five subs anyway. And I particularly like the thing where it's in three um, blocks, right? So you can't use it to slow the game down and make loads and loads of subs um, throughout the game because it would be too choppy, I think, if, if there were 10 potential substitution moments in an entire game. Mm-hmm. I, I like, yeah, I like that. I, I do not want them to go to like four substitutions to split the difference. That feels like a workshopped solution. It feels like a minimum wage of twelve sixty instead of $15. <laughs> like, no, thank you. Just stick with five. And not least because it also then does free you up a little bit more to take concussion protocol seriously. That if you have two substitutions as opposed to just one extra one, you can really handle that one and you're not so much punished if one of your players gets a potential concussion inside of 25 minutes. We've seen it before, especially actually if it's like 35 minutes and there's that idea of let's make it to halftime and then we'll see. Like you don't have to do that. You don't have to worry about that so much. And I think that is only for the benefit of the players. So for that reason as well, I'm good with it. Here's what will sell me on it is if Owen Atasori makes his Wolves debut as a fourth or fifth Mm -hmm. serve, I'm all in. If Indiana Vasilev gets another game... um, I'm all in if he gets another game as a fourth or fifth sub. I think it means more opportunities for the young Americans currently in Europe. And we are at like a generational thing, right? Where there's a lot of 17, 18, 19 year olds waiting to make their debuts for big teams. Mm -hmm. This gets Ledesma on the field earlier next season, maybe. I mean, I mean this like 50-50 joke serious again, but like Weston McKinney gets some appearances for Arsenal if there are five substitutions. That's my feeling. Yes, 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 yes. Um, also, apologies if there hasn't been any background noise. Uh, the dog who's terrified of all noise has been under the desk the whole time and has now decided to stir. So uh, she, she is here with me. She would like to be on mic, but I'm not letting her. But just uh, a clarification if you wonder why you hear strange noises in the background. I haven't heard. My dog tried, uh, to, good. My dog tried to get in the office. He did the, uh, the, the ram charge with his head to try and open the door, <laughs> and he failed. <laughs> I love your dog so yeah, much. Was, oh, no. Yeah. Does that mean he just slammed into the door? Yeah, I mean, he has a thick skull. He's got a Labrador skull. He's okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, but he, yeah, that bowling ball skull, man. He, it hurts. He tried and failed. Yeah. <laughs> what, he's such a good dog. I'll go, All right. I'll go see him after. Um, I, I miss... I miss I miss you almost as much as I miss Austin. That's fair. Yeah. That's fair. <laughs> I fear, Taylor, that we've run long. Um, yeah, I think we definitely have. But we'll be back tomorrow, right? Right, to mm-hmm. review probably uh, Man City, Liverpool, probably a touch on Sheffield United Spurs. I genuinely don't know if Bremen survived or not, so I'm going to go and look into that result as soon as we finished recording. Um, but we'll be back on Friday to talk about um, all of that um, and maybe some more listener questions as well. Until then, I'll say, Taylor Rockwell, thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you as well, my friend. And I will add, uh, we will also have a full uh, scouting detail uh, to get through as well. So we're going to have a lot of scouting reports. So if you've sent those in lately, we will have those ready to go tomorrow. Scouting reports are back. Thank you, Taylor. Thank you, listeners, for listening. And we'll talk to you again very soon.